0: Let us pray. Father God, this morning we desire to hear from you and your word. Please bless our ears and our mouths and all that we do this morning in order that they might be in service to better understanding your word and what you have done through our Lord Christ Jesus. Amen. This is my fifth Christmas preaching here at Old Gosh Nobbin Reformed Church. And I am uniquely excited about the passages I will find myself in, find myself in for the next four <laughs> sermons. Because, in one sense, I preached these texts before. I actually preached them the first year I was here. And uh, well. There is somewhere on the internet a a sermon that I kind of scoured these verses and looked at these verses. I have made it a point not to actually look at any of that material, consider any of that material, because the emphasis of these four sermons will be on the hymn lyrics of uh, these four songs that begin the Gospel of Luke. There are four hymns that are sung at the beginning of this gospel. One is sung here, which we're looking at by Mary. One is sung by Zachariah. One is sung by the angels. And one is sung by Simeon. And we will look at the fullness of all four of them over the course of the next four weeks. And so, in focusing on the hymn lyrics... Why I mention this is I'm not going to, most weeks, to get too much into the background material of these stories, some of the context. These are stories we know fairly well, but also somewhere on the internet, somewhere in the world, the wide web, is probably a sermon that deals more with the context. However, there are a few things before we get into this song by Mary we want to know. When Mary receives that good word from the angel Gabriel, she ends up making a hundred-mile journey in the desolate wilderness as a young woman to the hill country of Jerusalem. This was a hundred-mile journey. And depending on how you drive there, a hundred miles is The distance it would take us to get to Manhattan, New York. That's the distance. I'm sure I probably mentioned this five years ago as well. But that's the rough distance. If you start on Ridge Road, at least. There's a couple ways you can take a longer route. But surely enough, Google Maps from Wantsall to Manhattan is 100 miles. And that's the journey that Mary travels. It would have been a very dangerous, very perilous journey for a young woman to take. And in one sense, that's even an illustration for the Christian life at times. Sometimes Christianity is not safe. Sometimes being a Christian is, can be dangerous. And as the world regards danger. And yet the Lord is with us in those valleys. He's with us in those hard moments. And He journeys with us and leads us and guides us to a fuller place. In one sense, it's almost an illustration for life itself. We we are on a journey, and at the conclusion of the journey of this mortal body, I will pass away, you will pass away, and yet at the conclusion of that journey is a song, a heavenly song that awaits us, that is so glorious and so wonderful, that Mary is a typology. And the reason why she has made this journey to the hill country is that the angel actually gave her a confirming sign that her very old, notably old, cousin was with child, the John of And so she has done this journey in order to get confirmation of that. It's actually clear that Mary... Did this journey in faith? It wasn't that she was doubting, but still, she she pursued to desire to see Elizabeth with child. And so, the verses preceding our song, we read. And she, Mary, entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And with, when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. She exclaimed with a loud cry, "Blessed are you amongst women!" And blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is it this granted to me that the mother of my Lord shall come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. And so there's this moment. It's this is. It's actually... This is mild. This is not a significant theological debate, but there's this mild theological debate of when does the New Testament really begin? Some, like R.C. Sproul, suggested it actually begins in Genesis three fifteen. The first promise of the Messiah is technically the New Testament era of the Bible. He said, "I didn't so much have a problem with the Bible having an Old Testament, a New Testament." But Genesis 3.15 is the start of the New Testament. That promise of a gracious Messiah. Some just say, hey, this is a foolish debate. It's at the beginning, first verse of the Gospel of Matthew. I think an interesting idea is that the New Testament actually begins in this place. In this moment. When the children, the two wounds of these women means we have the final Old Testament prophet and John the Baptist leaping in the womb with joy when the child of the new covenant, the Messiah, the one who would usher in salvation through His grace, is met in the person of Mary. I think that's an interesting thought. Now, the hymn that ensues here do most people, I would guess most of us know the name of this hymn. What is this hymn traditionally called? Magnificat. But what you're actually saying is an abbreviation. The real name, the full name is Magnificat Anima Mea Domino. is not that just roll off your tongue? Magnificat Anima Mea Domino. You can see why it's been shortened to Magnificat. It's actually from the Latin Vulgate. It is the Western Church's tradition of really just reading that first verse of Mary. That first statement of Mary. My soul magnifies the Lord. And when we say magnifica, we're actually saying magnifies. Magnifies. This is a song of magnification. But in this first verse, the word I want to first focus on is not really Magnificat. It's actually the Latin word, maya. Or as we say it in the English, my. My, oh my, what an interesting word my can be. Mary actually repeats the word my twice here, right at the beginning, right in these first two verses. Now I should mention, right at the start, this song has seven parallelisms in it. Six are very obvious. One is found in the two verses on mercy. And what a parallelism is, and I'd love to remind the congregation of this, is something being said, sometimes in a slightly different way, twice, so that people remember. So what a parallelism is, is slightly changing the words at times, but basically saying the same thing twice catch what I did there? Did you understand what I did there? Those are parallelisms. And so, there is this shared word in both of these parallelisms right at the beginning here of mine. And mine. Now, the word mine has created a lot of angst and anger in our world. What do I mean by that? The dictionary definition of the word mine is belonging to or associated with the speaker. I would guess for all of us, one of the first fights we ever had, we might not remember it, was us going, mine. And somebody else going, no, mine. I'm sure we could venture to the nursery. Not our nursery, of course, because our kids are stellar. But some nursery, somewhere in the ether, somewhere on Sunday, and and churches and surrounding areas, and find one kid with a toy, and another kid who wants the toy, and the battle over the word, my, and mine. And snot would pursue, and tears would fall, and all of these things, because of the word, my. Mine is a powerful word. My is also a powerful word in adults. And frankly, as we fail to mature. Actually, my is such a powerful word that in the last U.S. election, the group that most largely went for the party that won the election was young women who captivated by their own form of a parallelism, my body, my choice. Now, I would say there's a scientific fallacy in that idea, because the my of the body we are talking about is not the body of the woman, but the body of someone with their own genetic DNA. But regardless, we live in an American society where we know elections are decided on the word my. Mine and mine. Mary uses the word mine here twice. And she uses it in a very different way. This is very distinguished, very separate from American ethics on the word mine. While that ethic of mine is centered on the self, Mary's understanding of the word mine is that at the core of her being, she is to be focused on God. Now, I want to be clear before I enter into this next illustration. There is no shame to be had. There is no shame to be had in our failures with the word my in our lifetime. When the word my has gotten the better of us, and in the result of the word my, we have done things sinfully, self-serving, and ultimately not pleasing to the Lord. In this illustration, there is no shame for the one who has come to Christ. But I think it's helpful to consider for a moment in this magnifica That if Mary had been a good, average, young American woman by society and the world's standards, what the Magnificat might have sounded like. This hymn would not be a Magnificat, but a godless lament that sounded something like this. God, this is going to inconvenience me. God, what about the dreams I had? Now, what? I have to put them on hold? This isn't fair to be pregnant when I wasn't expecting to be pregnant. I shouldn't be required to carry someone else's child to turn. This pregnancy would lead to a lifelong hardship. We know from the Gospel of John, chapter 8, I think it might be verse 41, when Jesus was in his 30s doing ministry, and Mary would have been in the midst. He was still being mocked for being a child of sexual immorality. Basically having his critics say, By their words, your mother was a harlot. Mary would have to move nations because the nation of her birth would want to kill her son. Mary would hear the gleeful joy as her son was nailed to a cross from his enemies and scoffers. Mary suffered dramatically for having a mind that wasn't selfish and self-serving, but having a mind that was rooted in God's design for her life. If any woman in history had the right to say, My body, my choice. It would have been Mary. And yet Mary, because she is a God-fearing woman, wouldn't dream of such a thing. Does not enter her equation. So be careful, American Christian. We live in a land that decides elections on ungodly ideas of the word me and my and mine, and none of them are biblical, none of them are worthy to be esteemed by us, we need to understand that us, my body, is to be a living sacrifice to the Lord our God. But let's not only pick on the my's of American culture. Let us do the less comfortable reality of picking on the minds of the church. In the church, mys can be most divisive. This is my church. This is my ministry. This is my activity. Stay out. Don't touch. You're not welcome. When we fail to see the greater collective purpose God has and our collective being brought here together, We have entered into embracing a worldly idea of the word mind. An idea of mind which misses what this first song of the New Testament is all about. This is the first hymn of the New Testament from stanza one. An inordinate amount of disagreements, arguments, and conflicts in the life of the Christian tend to spring forth in life revolving around. The ethos of thinking something is mine or mine. But when we start to let go of more of those my's and mine of life, God can do amazing things. It's when we're prepared to move forward in faith without a strong emphasis of "my" and cling to the biblical reality of ultimately all is his, that God does some of his best work in making us a church family uniquely distinguished from the world. As we continue to have a very active and lively congregation, we need to be careful. We need to be careful. We need to be a congregation who soberly considers the dangers of the word my and mine and how we use them and how we convey them in our congregation. The Philippian church, for instance, struggles with this. There are two women who are struggling in that church. And Paul says, you need to see your unity in the Lord. Mary's song knows unity with the Lord. Mary wasn't a woman busy, demanding personal autonomy. Mary was a woman who realized that the my and mine of her story was best placed in the hands of God. Mary's joy was surrendering the Maya mine of her life to God. And then so God ordained her to serve the woman with faith like this, to be the ark of all arks, the vessel of all vessels, to carry the ultimate deliverance for all God's people from the ty- tyranny of sin. And in that tyranny of sin, of course, is found in it. the idea That is mine. Now, there is another word I want us to see in this first parallelism. It's the last word of verse forty-seven. It's the word savior. There are actually quite a few commentaries on the Gospel of Luke. To make a commentary, usually study a book for decades. I have a past pastoral friend. He was a seminary teacher. RTS and he's working at, on a new pillar commentary for the Gospel of Matthew. He's over a decade in and he's not even a third of the way through the Gospel of Matthew. And, but when people summarize the Gospel of Luke, they often say this is the Gospel of the Savior. They often see that, that is, it's a reversal of fortunes Gospel. It's a Gospel to, to show the goodness of God as Savior. And it's kind of a remarkable summary to consider in this gospel, because the word Savior in this gospel is only used twice, is once used by the angels, more on that later week, but the only person, the only son or daughter of Adam who ever declares in the gospel of Luke Jesus is the Savior is Mary right here. She's given that unique honor. She's the first woman. She's the first person in the New Testament to ever declare, and think about this, two women with pregnant bellies, and she put that woman in, That's the Savior. That's the Savior, Elizabeth. She can write a song about it. She has this distinct honor and yet, and maybe this is just a byproduct of my youth growing up in a Roman Catholic church, and I know quite a few of you had as well. Thomas Aquinas points out on this: if Mary celebrated, needing, celebrating the receiving of her Savior, what did that mean? Mary was a sinner. A sinner. There have always been a lot of heresies. That surround Mary. It started with Gnosticism of trying to make Mary sinless, and the largest denomination that calls itself Christian in the world, around the time of Abraham Lincoln, around the time this church had its third remodel, where we got some more elbow room and it got spread out, it decided to infallibly declare that Mary never sinned. There are several instances in Scripture. While it's all fun and games to listen to a guy with a really cool hat, there actually, we are people to be grounded in the Word of God. And the Word of God, in several instances where Mary is shown to not be necessarily free from error, free from sin, free from misunderstanding. And this is the first one, and this is possibly the most clear one. She understands the joy of salvation, of having a Savior. And so that is something for us to know as well. But it's just an amazing reality. You know, people love to point out the Bible is patriarchal. You know, it's one of the criticisms. Wickedly patriarchal. And here, here at the beginning of the gospel. You know, Joseph gets a dream. Mary gets an angel. Mary gets to share the gospel. Who this baby is before anybody. Well, God has different roles for the genders. God has love for us in our unique roles. One last thing about verses 46 and 47. And I honestly could just do another sermon on this topic alone. I promise you, I know the first parallelism I've spent in an inordinate amount of time. I'll speed up for the rest of it. I have other Christmases, hopefully, to preach on this text. But in Mary's statement of, My soul magnifies the Lord, my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. I want you to understand this. Mary's joy is to see unity of God's spiritual lordship over her life within her body, in the body that she has. She basically wants the fullness of God to reign over her body. That's her idea. That's actually, in one sense, is connected to the idea of the image of God. The image of God is, in one sense, we were designed to be ruled and reigned over by God. And even over our members, even over our body, it's... a Self, as I, I quoted earlier, it is to be a living sacrifice unto the Lord. She has a strong semblance of this understanding of surrendering herself to God. I know all sorts of people who just want enough Jesus so that in the judgment of God to come they don't go to hell. But in focusing on the negative, they miss the positive aspect of what Mary is alluding to. Mary sees a heavenly inbreaking into the core of whom she is in her humanity. And she desires in this heavenly inbreaking to surrender her entire body and life to God. It's a foretaste of a greater spiritual heavenly glory. Giving your life to God more completely and more fully will cost you. It will be hard at times, as we even covered Mary's been was slandered. Mary was Disparage. Mary had to move at times. Mary had to watch her son die. But ultimately, she counted it all as joy. And she would give up her body so that she could bear the son who would give up his body for hers and yours and my salvation. So that's the first of seven parallelisms. I won't take that long on the rest of them, or we would be here for a while, maybe until five Christmases from now. But I want us to just quickly look over verses 46 to 49 of Mary's hymn, and to notice a few rapid-fire observations. First, Mary sees the gift of God as a reversal of her individual fortunes. Mary has the spiritual maturity to see ultimate blessing. The ultimate blessing this will be for her. Because God is behind this present change of plans. And why shouldn't she? The God of the universe has looked upon her with favor. And also, in God's so doing this for Mary, she has three attributes of God she mentions in verses 49 to 50. She more deeply understands these attributes through the work of God in her womb. And the attributes are God is mighty, God is holy, and God is merciful. God is mighty, God is holy, and God is merciful. And then a shift happens. So far in this song, Mary's focus has been on God's goodness to her. But now from verses 51 to 55, her song reaches out to others. She meditates upon what this mercy showered upon her will mean for God's people throughout all generations, past, present, and future. This is. I'm not going to go down that road right now. But here is a song that began with a strong and personal, faithful element, and now it becomes on the everlasting worldwide eternal implications of what has taken place in her womb. And to continue looking at these verses, in verse 51, the first half, she sings an expression of God that is very common in the Old Testament. That God shows His strength in His arm. Now, the remarkable thing about this image is that while you can find it in the prophets, you can find it in the Torah of Moses, and you can find it in the Psalms themselves that the strength of the Lord is in his arms. It's only directly used twice in the New Testament, both times in the Gospel. The first one being here, and the second one is found in the Gospel of John, chapter 12, verse 38, when John links the miracles of Christ to the miracles of God's arm in the Exodus. And that's interesting that the strength of the arm image is downplayed in the New Testament. Or I would submit, is it actually downplayed in the New Testament? Because while it's not explicitly stated, because while the outstretched arm image in the Old Testament was used in order to show a frame up from bondage, whether it was from Babylon, whether it was from Egypt, that this outstretched arm of God's mighty power would deliver him from bondage, what is the ultimate outstretched arm image of the New Testament? Is it not the cross? The cross that delivers us from the bondage of sin that frees us. And so here is one of the few times, one of two times in the entire New Testament, this imagery is used, and yet this the symbolism of this imagery, I would suggest in part, will point to the cross. And then we have verse 52. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those in humble estate. I love that Mary sings this verse in praise. Especially because we live in a world that loves to lift up heroes that are stunning and brave. And not really stunning and brave. You know that the universal hero of the great multitude this year has been the president of Ukraine. I heard that the president of Ukraine, because the Ukrainian Orthodox Church, some priests in that congregation have been speaking out against the war, has decided to silence the church. Give them Newspapers like the New York Times, the LA Times will write articles. This is great. This is a great idea. In one sense, that illustration is a little bit at the heart of Mary's imagery here. God will prove that those who appear at first look heroic, they might not be all that much of a hero. But those who are often ignored, God might lift up. And ultimately, uh, that Mary is celebrating the fact that if we get frustrated living in a world where those called heroic aren't always heroic, and those often ignored never seem to receive exaltation. God will rectify this problem. It's in God's hands. His outstretched arms will cover it. And this is an incredibly freeing idea when we get a hold of it as Christians. We have the courage to grab a hold of it. If we live by it, we don't have to seek applause. We don't have to beg for a compliment. We don't have to worry about puffing ourselves up in what we've done or And we don't need to do things for the applause of people, for fleeting words of human praise. But rather, when we grab a hold of this truth, we can strive in all that we do to do it for the glory of God. That is enough. The God who sees what we do, both in public and in secret, will know our motives, know the desires of our hearts, and he will bless those desires which are pure and good. Now, moving on to verse 52. If the Jew of Mary's. Could have heard Mary sing verse 52. It would have sounded to their ears like she was saying God was going to imminently remove Rome from power and restore the nation of Israel. But roughly 70 years after this song is first sung by Mary, it would be the second temple of Israel being destroyed and the nation being dispersed. It was Israel that was first destroyed before even Rome itself. And it was actually, going back to the previous point, it was the legalistic desire of Pharisaical religion, of religion that seek to thank God that I'm not like other men. They seek its own glory, its own esteem. That God was rightly just in destroying this nation. That He allowed this first nation to be brought down in the New Testament era into humility. Because they so puffed themselves up as great in the face of God. And somewhere, a day sooner than yesterday, even in our own great American experiment, when it will come to an end, most likely upon that eventual gravestone of this nation, will be, if I could write an epitaph in advance, this is yet another example of a nation that became puffed up that thought much of itself in its grander glory and in pride-laden sin, led itself into death. Verse 53, when Mary states, He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. It as echoes of the Lord's Prayer in it, we are to be a people who desire for God to give us the fill of His daily bread for us, and we're not just talking about food but we are to have a heart that hungers after God. If we long for the forgiveness of sins, if we hunger for the forgiveness of sins, we come to the living sacrifice that is our Lord, and we receive the good food that is the sacrifice for our sins. He fully satisfies us in the forgiveness that we need. And so as Mary draws her song to a close, she remembers God will be merciful to His ultimate promise to Abraham, who is just not to be the father of one nation, but the father of many nations. And his children would be blessed by God with an eternal inheritance. And the song closes. And as the song closes, I have three final thoughts I want to quickly bring up. The first is that Mary's song quotes an amazing amount of Scripture from an array of Old Testament books. She knew the Torah. She knew the Psalms. She knew the prophets. And she evenly knew that really heady topic that... Jesse just taught on? The attributes of God. And she knew them all at roughly the age of individuals such as Caitlin, Ilsa, Audrey, Rebecca, and Cora. And so what's our excuse, Christian? What's our excuse for lack of biblical understanding if we still resist? Are you allowing this Word of God to permeate your soul, to saturate your thoughts? God picked a young woman who had a remarkable understanding of the Scriptures. And through her remarkable understanding of the Scriptures, while a worldly-minded woman would have said, no, God, my body, my choice. You can't do this. This is my body. This is my life. You can't change my plan. This young but biblically robust Mary had the wisdom far beyond her years, able to say, really, Lord, really, you would so honor me, bless me like this, to allow me to be a vessel, an ark of your coming salvation? The second point I want to make before we close, and I didn't want to get too much into the Greek, but you can see hints of this in your English translation. Mary at times seems to be speaking in the past tense about things that were to come. In the present tense and other times, and even hints to the future. We actually covered some of this topic in men's study this week. But there's this unique outside-of-time reality to prophecy or eschatology. To steal yet again from Augustine, the idea is God has already created the full picture of his salvation. We, as finite beings, get a small glimpse of what God is doing in time. But the full picture has already been created of his salvation. Mary, in this moment, she through the blessing of the power of the spirit, a, a, a moment, a sacred moment of pulling back and being able to see the bigger picture of the Lord. And that small eschatological gift that Mary a glimpse that Mary has given is not so that she can rightly predict the future, but it's so that she can magnify and glorify the God, glorify God. Hence why we call it the Magnificat magnifies. So, then there's one final thing I want to point out about the lyrics of this song as we come to a close. Mary thanks God directly for six things in this song, indirectly for a seventh. She thanks God for His coming down in verses 46 to 48. She thanks God for His holiness in verse 49. She thanks God for His grace in verse 50. She thanks God for His power in verse 51. She thanks God for being the sovereign Lord in verses 52 and 53. And she thanks God for keeping His promises in verses 54 and 55. And ultimately she is thanking God for one final thing. It's left unspoken in the text. Actually, the commentator often point out she doesn't even really seem to mention a child, but she is surely thanking her God for the gift of this child. What a beautiful reality that she seized upon! And with this first Advent, this first coming of Christ, she understood the gifts. Of understanding that the my of her life, the mine of her life, was best seen, best expressed in becoming conformed to the plan of God, to, to walking the path and road that God had laid out for her, to surrendering herself, to humbling herself before God, not to be the woman who says, my and mine to God in defiance, but rather says, him and His will be done. And so let that be a message for us this Christmas. Let us surrender. Let us let go of some of that my and mine of life. And let go so that we might have more of Him and His. Amen? Amen. Let us pray. Father God, we thank you that the word of God is sharper than a two-edged sword. That the word that both cuts us to quick, also offers us a song of a savior. A song of redemption. Where shame and guilt melt away in the hope for established forgiveness of, of Jesus Christ. This reality is Past. This reality is present. This reality is future and eternal. And so let us this Christmas season be a people at rest, a people seeking not to establish our own kingdoms, but seeking to yearn for more of Your kingdom to come. Give us opportunities and love and service of the Lord. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.